Hello everyone, this is Ray Otis, and you are listening to Plundergrounds. Once again, today I want to revisit 1977 and talk about a game from Howard Thompson's metagaming line. In fact, I want to talk about a trilogy of games from 77 and 78 called Melee, Wizard, and Death Test, and they comprise really my first experience with fantasy gaming. And I want to say fantasy role-playing gaming, and there is a role-playing aspect that comes in with Death Test, but honestly, they were originally just designed for arena-style combat between fantasy warriors and wizards. When metagaming ceased producing games, Steve Jackson bought back the rights to a lot of his games, and I don't know the full history of that. I haven't researched it, but um, I, as far as I know, it was an amicable uh, sort of arrangement. And uh, he bought back rights to Ogre and Melee, Wizard, Death Test, etc. But I think even before, well, certainly before metagaming had stopped operations, they had started combining these games under a system they called the Fantasy Trip. And later on, they put out a full set of rules called uh, the Fantasy Trip into the Labyrinth. Uh, I was never familiar with the with the quote-unquote fantasy trip version of these. I only played Melee and Wizard and Death Test, and there was a Death Test 2 as well that I never saw uh, back in the day. Melee was uh, a game, is a game. In fact, it, it went through a Kickstarter recently where they put out a brand new edition of it uh, in, in typical Steve Jackson fashion. They turned a, a basically a pocket game into this elaborate uh, giant board game with counters and everything. And I suppose that's cool. For me, um, I think the beauty of it really was that it fit in your pocket, that it was kind of a very small game that you could carry around with you. Uh, so I, I don't know if it got better getting bigger um, or if it's just the same game, only bigger. Uh but basically, the game came with a small rule book and with a fold-out map. And the fold-out map was basically just hexes. There was a, a thing called a mega hex, which is a, a group of... You can almost think of it as a flower uh, of hexes. You have one hex in the center surrounded by... I guess it's surrounded by six hexes. That would make sense since it has six sides. <laughs> and then there's a heavy dark line around that. Uh, rosette of hexes called a mega hex, and so these uh, the the it was about three mega hexes wide by maybe five mega hexes tall, and on either end of that uh, map there were a small cluster of four hexes that had stars in them, and those were kind of the starting positions of combatants. That's where you would enter the arena, uh, per se. Now it wasn't really literally arenas. It could be, but it also represented any kind of battlefield. It was just an abstraction, uh, and then it also came with a counter sheet, which had some really cool counters on it. My main complaint about the counters: they had pretty neat little drawings, but uh, in each corner of the counter, they had a giant letter um, in like some sort of black letter font, which was very hard to read. Uh, it's it's this old school kind of unseal lots of flourishes and such and see so your Q's and your O's and your whatever they all kind of look the same <laughs> and it was kind of hard to figure out what was what uh, and they did that because uh, they only had a handful of drawings and so you'll have two of the same drawing but with different letters uh, so you could make different characters just assume they look similar or equipped similarly the rule book is uh, not super well written but it does one thing that I think is super cool it starts with a bit of fiction that kind of gives you a sense of what combat feels like from a fiction standpoint. And then, and, and that starts the book. And then as kind of a narrative frame, 
uh, it ends the book with, or the book ends with a mechanical description of a fight from the rules perspective that mimics the fight that you read about in the fiction to begin with. And to help us get into that spirit, my friend Angus, who played with me on Saturday, played a little death test with me on Saturday, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, did a dramatic reading for me from the first part of uh, the Melee booklet. And so here we are. This is the combat that appeared in the front of the Melee instruction booklet. Flavis Mosalas, youngest centaurian of the Legion, was angry. They had been in this force for three days. The German barbarians weren't showing themselves, except to pick off an occasional scout. And now, Honorius was overdue from sentry duty. If that old fool was dozing off again, there'd be trouble. As he stepped into the little glade, Flavius saw movement at the other end. Honorius? No. He sensed rather than saw the shaggy clothing and the ready bow. His soldier's reflexes launched him into a charge. Burdened as he was by helmet and graves, he would probably get the barbarian before. An arrow's not. Flavius has felt pain, but not much. Thank the gods for his armor. He moved in, waving to spoil the archer's aim. The second arrow missed. As Flavius neared, the barbarian moved to put his back to a tree. Third arrow went off as the Roman swung his sword. It struck, but the armor stopped it. Flavius' own swing went wild, but his opponent was forced to abandon his Now the German tribesmen had come up with an enormous broad sword. The two were trading huts. Slowed by his armor and shield, Flavius despaired of striking his agile opponent. Nevertheless, he did, wounding the barbarian badly. The bleeding German tried to sidestep, but Flavius cut him down. Somehow the tribesman's desperate stroke hit home. Glancing off the shield and through the armor, the broadsword bit into Flavius' side. Giddy from the shock, he abandoned the attack for a few seconds, content to parry and wait. The swords clashed and sparked. Then suddenly it ended. Flavius' short sword went under the German's wild slash and bit deeply. The unarmored savage staggered back. Flavius followed quickly and struck again. The barbarian collapsed, either dead or too badly wounded to stand. Flavius was hurt, but well able to walk. In the bushes he saw what was left of Honorius, but he was all right. He revenged for his man, and maybe a prisoner. He bent over the savage. Thank you. 
Thank you for that recording, Angus. That was way better than I could have done it. And you'll notice the names uh, like Flavius and uh, I forget the century's name, but the book did use names that were from that kind of Roman frontier. Uh, They were either Roman names or like Germanic tribal names for the characters that they give as examples. Oddly enough, then the uh, capital letters on the counters, as I mentioned before, had more of a black letter style, and then which would be, I suppose, kind of a medieval monk uh, typewriting. And then the drawings were really just high fantasy. You know, they looked uh, like just very kind of mishmash fantasy. In fact, they <laughs> all, the, all the characters are wearing bell bottom jeans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not literally, but all their pants are flared out at the bottom. And keep in mind, this was 77. Uh, but as I got the counters back out, it made me laugh. Especially there's a two-headed giant in the counter set, and he takes up three hexes. So he makes a triangle counter. And uh, he looks a little bit like Lou Ferrigno, who played the Hulk on TV with a second head. and then uh, But wearing giant bell-bottom jeans. <laughs> And it just made me laugh to look at these things in their bell-bottom jeans and imagine all my fantasy characters in bell-bottom jeans. But honestly, that mishmash of styles kind of worked. Uh, it certainly worked for me in the 70s. I thought it looked pretty cool. Captured my imagination. So let's, um, let's, let's describe play a little bit. I mentioned before the map that it's uh, roughly in shape like a legal-sized piece of paper in the U.S., meaning it's a very long uh, piece of paper. And uh, has mega hexes on it. The mega hexes are essentially flat-topped hexes, uh, meaning the flat side of the hex points to the top of the page. So I want you to imagine a character counter, which was a square, setting inside of a hex that's inside of a mega hex. So you're basically uh, looking at this square counter uh, with a drawing on it, maybe a letter in the corner, probably a letter in the corner, um, with its uh, top aligned to a flat side of a hex and then a series of hexes just surrounding it. The first three hexes, the one directly north and northwest and northeast of your character, are its facing hexes. And so there's no penalties in your facing hexes, and that's where your shield bonus applies. Uh, The two hexes south of that, your southwest and southeast hexes, are your flanks, and your shield doesn't apply to that. Plus, any enemy there gets uh, basically a plus two to hit you there. It's actually a minus two, because what we're dealing with here is adjusted dexterity, but I don't want to get to that just yet. And then... On the rear hex is obviously your rear, and that's a a minus four bonus to an attacker. So you have a very strong sense of positioning and facing. And your arc of fire as a character with a missile weapon would be uh, a line from those three hexes in front of you. You can sort of imagine the left and right most edge of those hexes uh, are kind of like a ray coming off of your character at like a 45-degree angle. And those uh, spread, well, actually, it's more than 45 degrees, but that doesn't matter. Um, you just draw a line straight out, you know, on the map, and that's basically your ranges. Okay, so here's how combat works. Uh, you have a strength score, which represents how many hits you can take and what weapons you can use. Uh, and basically, that's all it does. It, it doesn't figure into damage. It doesn't figure into hit. It just tells you how much strength you have to uh, wield weapons and how long you last. Uh, okay. And then you have dexterity, which is the most important element in the game of uh, of melee. I, I say most important. I don't know that it's more important than strength, but you just mess with it a lot more. So you, it becomes a focal point for the game. Maybe that's a better way to say it. 
you have a dexterity, and so you start the game with eight points in each strength and dexterity, and then you take another eight points and divide it between the two. And your dexterity number tells you, um, it doesn't tell you what armor you can wear, but it sort of does, because the armor you wear adjusts your dexterity. Um, actually, it adjusts your dexterity and your movement allowance. So that's your basically your third stat is movement allowance. You start with 10 movement, and you go down to 8 if you wear leather, and down to 6 if you wear chain, and down to 4 if you wear plate mail. So your mobility is greatly hampered by uh, your armor. But... Uh, and then you get minuses to your adjusted dexterity based on uh, armor 2. It's not quite as severe. For instance, I remember chainmail was minus 3. So even though it takes, uh, what does it take? It takes 4 off of your movement, but it only takes 3 off of your adjusted dexterity. So your dexterity is adjusted for armor, and it's adjusted for um, positioning. So you basically get a bonus to your, wow, if I get this right about the minuses? Hang on, I got a review here real quick. Make sure I'm getting this correct. Yep, I got it wrong. It's a plus, plus two and plus four if you're in an enemy's flank or rear to your adjusted dexterity. So armor takes your dexterity down, and um, attacking adv advantageous attacking position uh, pushes it back up. Other things that adjust your dexterity when you're attacking are uh, like missile ranges. So if you throw a weapon, it's minus one to your adjusted dexterity for every hex in distance. If you're firing a bow, it's minus one to your adjusted dexterity for every mega hex. Actually, um, you don't get a penalty for the first two mega hexes, but then you get minuses if the target is three or four uh, it's minus one mega hexes away and, and if five or six if it's mi uh, minus two if it's five or six mega hexes away and as i'm looking at this i realized that angus and i played that wrong the other day so <laughs> good to know um there's some other stuff in here there's some other minor adjustments so basically that's how it works and when you go to hit you have to roll under your adjusted dexterity on 3d6 so if you're walking around in let's say um chain mail which is minus three and let's say you've got a, a an enemy's flank so it's going to be plus two so now you're at minus one and let's see there's an adjustment if you took five or more hits the last turn we'll, we'll say that didn't happen uh, and we're not throwing yeah let's say we're going to throw a weapon let's say we're going to throw a spear at an enemy that's two hexes away so um that's another minus two uh, so we're back to minus three. So if I started with a, a dexterity of eight, I'd have to roll a five or less on 3d6. And so there was actually a fairly high whiff factor in the game. Uh, but boy, when you hit, it's pretty bad. Uh, armor soaks up hits. So armor is... Um, is, uh, reduces incoming attacks, um, and that's where, even though it's a huge penalty to movement, armor then becomes a, a, a big deal. And in fact, if you go back to the fiction that Bill read, there's a moment where Flavius mentions that uh, in his he's encumbered by armor, but he thinks he can get there before basically too many shots are fired at him. And so because he's wearing heavy armor, he just decides to go straight in and try to trust into his armor, uh, trust in his armor to reduce the damage. Um, Weapons do different damages, uh, but they're all based on a D6. In fact, everything in the game is based on D6s, so you need three, D3, three D6s to play. And the most damage anything does, I think, is 3D6, although we, we'll get into some monsters, maybe it goes higher. But uh, 
for instance, a broadsword, uh, not a broadsword, a two-handed sword in close combat, I think, does 3d6. Um, and then there's a lot of pluses and minuses. So I think like a dagger does one minus one, or a halberd does two minus one, that kind of stuff. Uh, weapons are also cool in that uh, pole weapons have advantages against charges, and when you're charging... Um, there's a lot of weapon swapping details. Like you can't just, uh, swap weapons at, at, at will. Um, it takes a turn to stand up. There's a lot of, there's a lot of tactics in the game. There's a pushback mechanic. Uh, if you take no wounds, but cause wounds, you can push a character back one hex and then follow them up, uh, which means you could even push them into a pit. If there's a pit there, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's just got a lot to it. And, there's a there's a whole sequence of play that involves first movement so you you roll for initiative and again your dexterity plays into that uh is that right no no that's not right you roll for initiative it's just a side initiative so everybody rolls a d6 and uh you go in and die order um and that's for movement. So you move and then you're or you can make your opponent move first if you want, which is often a good tactic if you win initiative. So you move or make your opponent move and then the other side moves. And then you go into your attacks and the attacks are in adjusted dexterity order. So that's where it comes into play. So the speed at which you can attack is is as matters a lot too um who goes first. And nothing happens simultaneously. It's all in sequence. So it really does matter if you could get rid of an enemy before it's their turn, then they can't you know, shoot back at you or fire back, uh, swing back at you. Um, and then there's one other little section of rules that I, I call the dog pile rules. They're called the hand to hand combat rules, which I, I find confusing cause I feel like is melee, not hand to hand combat. Well, at any rate, uh, <laughs> the, um, the hand to hand combat rules are basically when you move into the hex of an enemy and you can only fight with fists and daggers in there. Uh, it's close, very, very close quarter, dirty fighting and damages are uh, shifted in there. Um, adjusted dexterities go way up. Uh, meaning it, it's, you're, it's hard to almost hard to miss when you're in close quarters. And that makes some monsters like, uh, bears are one of the monsters in the game. It makes them super dangerous. And in fact, if we go back to that counter sheet for a minute, and I talk about the mishmash of styles that they had, the counters sort of reflect a quasi-historical bent to them. They had, uh, as I mentioned, they had a two-headed giant, but most of the monsters in there are uh, wolves and bears and snakes. So kind of giant snakes, but, you know, basically real world animals um maybe blown up a little and then uh and then there were i think gargoyles also in the melee sheet although this might have been in the wizard sheet i get them confused sometimes okay uh, and so then after melee came out and i played a ton of that um wizard came out the following year which added spells to the to the rule book and um wizard is is very much the same game uh they repeat a lot of the rules in the wizard book and they actually take on that same structure where they introduce Wizard with a bit of fiction. And so since we had a reading for Melee, I figured we ought to have a reading for Wizard. And I, I did this one. Not nearly as good as Angus did, but uh, you, you can judge for yourself. I think it came out okay. Yazor wondered, for at least the fortieth time that morning, how he had gotten into this. Only last night he had nothing more pressing to worry about than the weather, and here he was, in a duel to the death. Of course, his mentor, Aranen, had explained it all. 
Basically, son, it's an attack on me. None of the masters of the Treo school cared to face me in the arena, but it was easy enough for them to bribe a proctor for validation when you were called out. They won't do it again, but you have no choice. If you wish to stay here, you must fight. Do you even know this Kraid who claims you insulted him? Yazor did, vaguely. His opponent was a boastful little man of his own age, hot-tempered, of no great learning, but small and quick as the snake whose name he bore. Like Yazor, he was an advanced student in martial magic, but once already Crate had killed in the arena. Then the gong rang, and Yazor exhaled and stepped into the arena. At the other end, he saw Crate. Abruptly, the gong rang again. Yazor took a slow step forward, framing in his mind the spell that would dazzle Crate and spoil his deadly accuracy. His hands moved, and a flash came, but not before Yazor saw a wolf appear at Crate's end of the hall. At least, he thought, it'll dazzle the wolf too. He had no doubt it was real. Crate was too unsubtle to throw an image, and not learned enough to use an illusion, but he? Suiting actions to thoughts, Yazor pictured a wolf. The knot of force appeared, an illusion. Well, at least my spells are working. Crate was standing still with a look of concentration, casting a protective spell on himself, no doubt, and Crate's wolf was rushing for Yazor. Then it was on him, but his illusion was on its tail. The dazzle had slowed its reactions just enough to let Yazor jump back, leaving the two wolves to fight. A glance at Crate showed him glaring at the wolves. He knows it's an illusion, thought Yazor. Can he master himself and disbelieve? Evidently not. Yazor's wolf remained, but Crate's disappeared. He gave up on it, thought Yazor, knew it wouldn't reach me, and he slowed. But then, across the arena, Crate's fist moved and Yazor felt ribs crack. Barely strong enough to stand, he stood and watched as his own illusion raced across the sand. Crate had to be weakening, too. The little man was staggering as he looked from Yazor to the wolf. He started his punching gesture. Yazor waited. He felt the blow. Saw Crate collapse. Saw through his illusion's eyes as it bit and knew it was over. Wizard added a third stat to the game that became very important, IQ. Uh, IQ also, like Strength Index, starts at 8, and then you split 8 points among the three stats now. And basically, if you converted a melee fighter into wizard, you just added an IQ of 8 and you were done with it. Um, so you didn't readjust all your points. But basically, uh, IQ was good for which spells you cast, how many spells you know, um, and for shrugging off uh, magical attacks. Basically, that was it. I think I think, don't think there was anything else tied to it. Um, so if you had an IQ of 10, you knew 10 spells... And they could be from level 10 or lower. It was very uh, very elegant that way as opposed to how D&D does it where you might be level 5 but you can only know spells up to level 3, you know, and you don't know 5 spells, you know, some other number spells. So they don't, you know, it doesn't align. I really like that and maybe how, the, how they did that or uh, in Wizard how they did that. Uh, and there are some cool spells. There's a heavy focus on illusions and disbelieving illusions. And uh, I really like that because I always feel like illusions are just too nerfed in D&D. I was one to do an illusionist, but man, the uh, you know, just too many ways to disbelieve or, or get rid of an illusion. Uh, but in melee, 
first of all, any creature with an IQ of eight or le- uh, less than eight, I should say, less than human intelligence, can't disbelieve. Uh, so wolves and bears and snakes and all that kind of stuff, they don't get a chance to disbelieve your illusions. Uh, so, a, so an illusionary bear is just as good against another bear as an actual bear. And it's a lot easier, uh, certainly a lower level spell, to summon an illusion of a bear than it is to actually summon a bear. Um, and then... If you are over, uh, if you're of human intelligence or higher, you get a chance to, uh, you basically get a saving roll. But, and here's another twist that I really like it's made by the wizard. So the wizard tries to uh, force his illusion over your IQ. Basically, he rolls 3d6, and if it's under your IQ, you disbelieve. But if it's over your IQ, you, you don't. Um, you believe it's real. Or can't make your even if you know you might actually kind of know it's an illusion, but you can't make yourself respond to it as if it's not an illusion, which I think is very cool. Uh, and uh, so, in that fiction that we just heard, I don't know if it was very clear. I don't know that this one was as well written as the Mealy one, but you have a wizard who casts an actual wolf, and then you have a wizard who casts an illusionary wolf, and the enemy wizard knows it's an illusion, or guesses it is. I suppose illusioning uh, spells and summoning spells look exactly the same, but he just uh, he suspected it was an illusion, but he couldn't make himself disbelieve it. And so in the end, he dies to that illusion, biting his throat out. <laughs> Which is cool. I mean, I like that. That was really neat. Um, there's a lot of uh, summon, um, you know, like a hex of fire, summon a wall. There's some of those kind of things. They're very tactical. All the spells are very tactical. So there's a lot of illusions, summoning, and and, um, you know, some basic kind of pyrotechnic sort of spells. And those are very cool. I just thought the whole thing was, uh, you know, it's very well done, actually. Uh, but the other thing about the wizard book is, or wizards in general, is that the other two stats really matter. You, When you divide that eight between the three skills, it matters a lot to both fighters and wizards. Um, wizards use strength in their spells, so every time they cast a spell, they don't have uh, cast and forget slots like... Uh, like D&D. Instead, they have a number of spells that they know, and so you jot down those spells, and they can cast any of them, but every one of them has a strength cost, and it costs you not only strength to cast them, but it costs you strength to maintain them. So if you uh, have a real wolf or an illusionary wolf that you summon, it's going to have an initial cost, and then you'll probably pay one strength a turn just to keep that thing around. And uh, it makes it very hard to keep something going for very long. I find it just to be a much more elegant way of dealing with spells than having uh, it last for a specific number of turns and using a die to count those down. Now, there are some spells in the game that do last for a specific number of turns, but most of them have that strength cost for maintaining, uh, and I just really like that. So high strength is important to you as a wizard, and uh, high dex is important to you as a wizard because you're going to need to act first uh, (laughs) to keep yourself from getting destroyed, right? And you're probably not going to wear armor uh, because that reduces your adjusted dexterity and makes you go later. But you could easily. I mean, there's nothing in the book that says a wizard couldn't wear plate mail. Uh, You could do that. It's just going to basically make you act last. Of course, you you could also shrug off some hits. So that's kind of of up to the wizard. Um, Anyway, there's a a lot of flexibility in how you put these things together. And there's a lot of strategy in allotting that eight points. There's a lot of strategy in positioning yourself on the map. There's a lot of strategy on who acts first and whether you make your opponent act first if you win initiative. Uh, There's a lot of strategy in terms of keeping your adjusted dexterity high so that uh, not only do you move first, but you 
get a chance to to act first. I sometimes confuse those, uh, by the way. So if you got confused, it's probably me, not you. Uh, at any rate, just a lot of strategy, a lot of maneuvering, and a lot of cleverness built into that game. I really... The only thing I don't like about the game is just keeping track of those adjusted dexterities. It gets a little fiddly, and I kind of wish there was a better way to do that. Oh, I, this is one of the things I didn't mention is uh, there's a lot of rules about casting into and through things. So, you know, uh, basically it's that old... If you miss your target, then you got to roll to miss all your friends that were in between you and the target. Uh, and if you strike into melee, uh, oh no, if you strike into hand to hand combat uh, where people are rolling around on the floor trying to knife each other, you have a very good chance of hitting your friend. So you want to be careful about shooting through or stabbing into hand to hand combat where uh, your friends are involved. Okay, I think that's a pretty good overview of Wizard. Now let's move on to Death Test, and this won't take long, because Death Test is just a choose-your... It's like a choose-your-own-adventure, where all the passages are numbered, and you get to make choices. You know, if you go east, uh, you go to page 32. If you go north, go to page 116. Uh, Not pages, uh, numbered passages, I should say. And they packed a lot of story into a very small booklet. So once again, we're talking about another little, you know, probably 24 to... uh, Probably 24 28 page uh, booklet that's um, you know like uh, six inches tall by three inches wide or something not not very big and I never have measured these things one of these days I'm going to do that so I get that accurately uh, but you know there's just a lot of story in those and then what would happen is if you entered a room well let me back up uh, there's a story of sorts behind this. Uh, it's a, it's basically a powerful ruler who's recruiting people for his army, and you, as a, a as an adventurer, go into his labyrinth where he tests you. Um, against other creatures and it sort of makes a point in the beginning like hey don't bother looking for secret doors you know this is a test of strength not wits and uh, so you go into the labyrinth and you uh, navigate that and you fight foe after foe Um, if you don't have the wizard booklet then you use only melee characters and the the challenges you face are only like warriors and, and monsters. But if you do have wizards, then there are wizards and magical creatures in the game. Uh, and the, one of the interesting things about it is, instead of having doors between the rooms, there are magical black curtains and uh, these kind of uh, just black rectangles or voids. And when you try to move from room to room, if a room, if all the combatants in the room are dead, uh, you can just move through the the curtain. But if they're not all dead, if you try to escape the room through the curtain, there's a lot of rules that that come into play. You you have to have one point of movement left. Um, you can shift through it, which, by the way, I didn't mention this before, but one of the things you can do in combat is like shift one space. Uh, and so there's a basically like a five foot step, but it really helps you kind of slide around an enemy to get into their flank. Uh, but if you were tied up right at the black curtain and you could shift over to get beyond the curtain, you could try that. But you have to make a roll in most cases, and each room tells you what happens. Um, sometimes, like uh, Angus and I tried to flee a room. We were dying big time. Both my characters were dead. Uh, he had his wizard and uh, character left, but they were both super low on strength. And he tried to leave the room, and the curtain bounced him back. <laughs> so he just had to eat it. <laughs> we all died, by the way. Spoiler alert, all four of us died in a room against uh, four warriors and a wizard. Uh, but mostly because we had taken heavy damage 
cages in this room that uh, had two bears in it. Now, the rooms, when you when you catch a room and the rules, uh, first of all, they have a color. So there'll be like the gold room or the red room, and that really helps you keep track of where you've been. And you really do have to keep track in this game because they'll give you facings, and sometimes it, it matters whether you come into the room from the east or come into the room from the west, and uh, which what, what's going on in the room. But they draw you a little picture of the melee hex map and and put in pits and obstructions. And so you've got a little bit of a terrain, uh, some terrain features to work with. So like in the fight with the two bears, the whole center of the room was pits. The, fr- the three mega hexes right in the middle of the room were pits. And uh, actually, that's going to tell me that the map is five mega hexes by three mega hexes because they had one mega hex all the way around these pits. Uh, and so if we'd have gotten to the bears and forced them to step back, we could have shoved them over into the pit. Um, but man, those bears were vicious. Uh, they were mean. The only way we basically ended up beating the bears was the wizard uh, controlled one of the bears and made it fight the other bear because um, <laughs> they were they were tearing us up. And we were trying to figure out how to get by them, but it was hard to get by them because they would stand in in a mega hex. You know, they're standing in a mega hex on one side of a pit and a wall on the other side, and you can't get around them because you're going to enter their facing hexes, which means you have to stop and shift around them. Uh, and the meanwhile, you're getting torn up. So it was very cool, uh, very cool game. Uh, you know, we just we kind of tried our luck against the arena and we lost, or against the labyrinth and we lost. Uh, so we didn't get to enter the retinue of the the powerful warlord. But if you do make it back out and you have to just kind of retrace your steps and you have to keep track of any opponents you leave behind. Like we got out of that bear room and left one of the bears there with I think like eight strength left. Uh, so if we'd have gone back, we would have had to maneuver around the bear or kill the bear to get back through. Um, and when you come out of the dungeon, based on how well you do is is what your rank and pay is in the in this um, powerful uh, overlords uh, or warlords retinue. So very cool. Um, and as a kid, you know, it was a great way to play solo. I feel like all these games, one of the things that metagaming did really well was build their games so that you could play them solo and. That kind of matters in wargaming. It's often hard to find an opponent to play a long wargame with you, but even a short wargame, it's nice to be able to sit down and learn the rules by playing through a scenario or two uh, at your at your kitchen table. And it's just kind of fun. It's something to do in your downtime. You know, you can actually play the game instead of just sitting there reading the rules and dreaming about playing the game. So that's Melee, Wizard, and Death Test. And I know that uh, I've said Melee and Melee interchangeably. I grew up saying it Melee. I think the right way to say it is Melee. Uh, Really, I don't care. It's, you know, it's one of the two. Who cares? Maybe maybe you can say either one. Um, So I've used them interchangeably uh, unintentionally. I tried to say Melee throughout, but there you go. So, Melee, Wizard, and Death Test. A good set of little games. I don't know if they're available anymore. Um, They may have come out in their original versions as a little side benefit to the Kickstarter. Um, I'll have to look into that. If you can find old copies of them, they're pretty cool. They're worth finding. Oddly enough, we used uh, the third edition of Melee and the fifth edition of Wizard, or maybe it was vice versa. We used the third edition of Wizard and the fifth edition of Melee when we were playing, and I think there were some discrepancies. It it seemed to me like uh, the hand-to-hand rules weren't in the Wizard book, and so I wonder if that kind of dogpiling mechanic came in later. I don't remember it when I was a kid, um, whether I had that rule in there or not. So uh, there may be some differences, but it all works together pretty seamlessly. Uh, It's a nice little system. It would be really good for a a gladiatorial 
arena style game, especially for maybe like a con scenario. If you wanted to build up a nice little arena with some cool miniatures and, and play it out, that would be, it would be a really great set for that. And it's fairly easy to teach. Like I said, the most complicated part is the way uh, dexterity goes up and down and also which actions you can choose based on whether you're disengaged or engaged. There's a whole other thing I didn't bring up, but it's pretty, you, you start to figure that out pretty quickly and intuit it. Um, so, so most things you internalize quickly, um, other than that adjusted dexterity. That's, that's, that's the one that's kind of hard to keep track of. Uh, so as the game facilitator, you'd really have to help people out with that. I recommend it. Very cool. Like I said, the rule book's not the best written, but I do love what they did with the examples. The examples are very clear. In fact, if you're reading Mealy, I would suggest read the introductory fiction and then go back to the end of the book and read the example and then read the rules because I think it might will make more sense in context to have a, you know, have a little bit of a framework to build around uh, of a fight, an example fight. Okay, I guess that's it for me today. This is Ray Otis signing off. You've been listening to Plundergrounds. The opening and closing music is You Can Use by Captive Portal. You can find links to all my projects at www.rayotis.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And until next time, look out for Rust Monsters. Part of loving other people and creatures is being willing to give up the convenience of self-direction in order to make room for their needs and habits. Uh, I'm mostly a cat person now. I grew up as a dog person.